welcome to another exciting edition of Movies and Tea. We are still in our After Hours block, and more excitingly, uh, we all now get to wish you all a very happy Halloween. And uh, rather suitably, so for Kim's pick tonight, we're going to be looking at the 2017 Spanish-language Mexican horror mystery film from Isa Lopez, Tigers Are Not Afraid, a film which has not only generated a huge amount of hypes in recent months, but also attracted the attention of Guillermo del Toro, who's sort of become sort of a sees uh, Lopez as kind of a protege as they've already signed up to work together on their as untitled werewolf cowboy movie but certainly Tigers Are Not Afraid currently a Shudder exclusive has not only been a subject's most excitement on the festival scene but also within the horror community as well. Um, here we have a film that not only calls back the likes of Del Toro's earlier Spanish work with films such as The Devil's Backbone and uh, Pan's Labyrinth being heavily referenced here but at the same time Lopez is providing a film which is also very unique and of her own voice as we are presented a story set in an unnamed Mexican city devastated by the ongoing drug war and the effects of the local cartel um, through this we are introduced to a young girl called Estrella here played by Paula Laura whose mother disappears mysteriously one day and leading her to join a Lost Boys-esque style group of orphan children uh, led by the rather angry and revenge-seeking Shine here played by Juan Roman Lopez. Um, at the same time she's been gifted the ability to be granted free wishes which over the course of the story she will use to help aid her friends as they set out on a very unique path of revenge uh, all the while guided by and haunted equally by the ghosts of the victims of the cartel who aim to both guide as well as haunt her Estrella on her journey but Kim, I mean, this is obviously your pick for the After Hours block this season, and this is a film I think we were both kind of excited to talk about. I know for myself, I came to it very late in the game as I sort of picked up the trailer, but you'd seen it previously uh, on the festival scene. And um, what is it about uh, Tugs Are Not Afraid that made you want to obviously pick it, especially for a Halloween pick? Well, I mean, Tigers Are Not Afraid is... It's a movie that, you know, it's not your your typical horror movie. Um, there are a lot of kind of horror elements in it, like you said, you know, ghosts and stuff like that. But a lot of it is, is you know, a dark fairy tale. And I'm a big fan of dark fairy tales. And I think that obviously drawing that connection to, um, I remembered in the festival scene, I think one of the things that a lot of people brushed it off, but at first, but the first group that went to go see it started talking about, you know, how it was... Um, very similar to, you know, Guillermo del Toro, you know, with Devil's Backbone and, and Pan's Labyrinth, uh, more commonly named, obviously. I guess it's more widely seen also. Um, that, you know, it really became a movie that I stumbled across in the festival scene as one of the later picks. Um, luckily, because I had missed the screening, but I was able to get my hands on a screener. Um, so obviously, you know, my first viewing experience was... <laughs> was one with watermarks and stuff like that. Um, so this viewing was really good because um, I actually, uh, you know, got to see it in the way it was supposed to be seen, um, you know, without that sort of watermarks and all those things. Um, so a lot of more details came into play. And 
um, when you're watching this, you know, it, it feels, you know, I guess because it's a repeat watch for me, I noticed a lot more um, little things that showed up and little little things that they did and different references and stuff that really, you know, I think uh, I think it, it's it's one that I would go back to. And I and I think that, you know, it, it really holds up even even in a second viewing. Definitely so, and I mean, right from the start, we've got the element of fairy tales that's been discussed by um, Estrella's class, and I mean, right there, we've got one of Del Toro's favorite things in the world is fairy tales, and especially if he can find dark fairy tales to share with his audience. And it's easy to understand why people obviously want to draw comparisons to Del Toro's work. I mean, especially I would say more so for like Devil's Backbone, and as we saw throughout our, our whole season, we did on Del Toro. This film really sort of resonates with his Spanish language work rather than his work that he did uh, for the American audiences, so things like Blade Two and Pacific Rim. It's it, it's, it's very much as in tune with like the Spanish uh, language films that he did, and the film. As I said, I just felt myself constantly coming back to like Devil's Backbone as like that key film that I wanted to sort of compare it to. I mean, certainly both films have got ghosts guiding. A young um, hero, or in this case, heroine, and certainly here with, I mean, the ghost element sort of introduced very early on. We see sort of like the spirit lines, and the, the, Lopez, I mean, she never actually explains how the ghost element works in the films. It's just present and leaves it to the audience to sort of figure out how it works themselves, whether the ghosts are good, whether they're trying to guide her. But, um, I, or not, so. but I really think that, you know, the ghost element comes a lot with them. It, it's like it's like sometimes when you you kind of like call up something by doing another thing. And for her, it all starts when she makes her first wish. And that really, you know, triggers this set of events that go on um, where, you know, she 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 begs for pretty much um, to to see her mother again, which is which is because she doesn't know where her mother is. And and because of that, you start seeing these ghosts appearing, this figure in her house, and she starts being haunted by these creatures who are reaching out to her and talking to her. Um, and and they, they pretty much, you know, follow her throughout the story, um, whether it's, you know, in, in that, you know, uh, blood that's following her or, uh, or that sort of stuff. Um, just like, you know... The, this group is you, you have this kind of like more I guess darker element in the story I think that you know the parallel of this is how the kids always refer to all their fairy tales and all their stories they believe, believe in revolve around tigers and it and tigers play such such you know a big part in the story whether it's you know her starting you know the starting of the movie where she writes a, where writes her fairy tale about a, a prince who wants a tiger and and you know it goes towards to you know when Shine talks about uh, tells his gang of friends um, and more comforting the little boys and stuff about you know the the powerfulness of the tigers and he, it's in a way that's his fairy tale for the kids to believe a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. When I mean, when certainly when we have Shine say uh, given his version of the the tiger fairy tale, it felt almost like. That this this tiger fairy tale had been part of the local culture and it sort of passed on from generation to generation, and depending on your sort of background is how the story is presented. So obviously with 
Shine's character. I mean, the tiger is this character, this creature who's uh, very much a protector. And with uh, Mistrella, it's sort of very much a sort of like a, seen as a, a sense of sort of status. Um, and it's funny the fact that how the these children they're still got this innocence to the world around them. They yeah. still, even though the, it's like a very adult world they're constantly surrounded with. I mean, we've got the fact that the gangs are constantly moving on the city, so more and more of the buildings are becoming empty. The city itself is under such stranglehold, it's become like a ghost town. People are just randomly disappearing, and the police are powerless to do anything. And even when presented with evidence of what the gangs are doing, they, they want no part of it whatsoever. Um, and yet, we've got these children who, as I said, they're just constantly exposed to these things. So we're, what, 10, 15 minutes into the film and the school's being shot up by the local gangs. Um, and yet these children are still able to find these moments of pleasure and innocence as we see later in the film when Shine's gang break into a, a sort of an abandoned mansion. Hotel, building. I guess. I wasn't sure whether it was whether it was like a hotel or what, just purely because there's all these like luxury sort of items. Like you've got the broken fish tank, which has now formed this this indoor pond which mm. i thought was such a cool yeah uh feature and yet before this we've got like the kids are like oh we want to find like a house which has got like a zoo and a football pitch and they end up in this 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 um hotel as you you said and it's all like well we've got this pond a pond is just like a zoo with fish yeah. and we've got we've got this uh place we can play football so it's like we can all our dreams can still actually come true even though we got potential of being like shot by cartel members who were wanting to understand, in particular the thug Coco, who we see shine steal a phone and a gun from at the start of the film, and it becomes this real sort of central uh, plot point of the gang trying to constantly get this phone back, and what the phone sort of symbolizes to not only the gang but also the different members of this sort of Lost Boys troop, because it's obviously got uh, for for. Shine, it's got photos of his mother on there. For Estella, we it's sort of like it's hides like the truth uh, of what happened to her mother, and obviously to the uh, the gang member Coco. It's really obviously this incriminated evidence of what they've been up to, um, as he's obviously got these videos of them carrying out horrific acts of torture and murder. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, and and you know I think that you know going back to the point about the the kids. There is this really great innocence to them. And I think that that's what makes this story so great because it, you know, if you draw a similarity to it, it's really similar to the the devil's backbone situation um, with Guillermo del Toro, where, yeah. you know, these kids are in an orphanage and yet they're surrounded by war and they're able to, you know, still play. And, you know, with a, you know, they had the big, they had like that big bombshell in the center of their yard and they were still able to play <laughs> just like here. It's like the world around them breaks apart and they're, and they're, you know, being followed and, and being chased down by this cartel. And for no reason, because they don't even know why they're being chased. They, they, they only think that they want to get back the phone, they want to get back the gun, but they don't really understand the significance until, you know, when they start looking further into it. And in that sense, you know, like, these kids, I, I, I think it's, it's crazy because, you know, you have these little subtle things, like, you know... Um, some guy is shot down in the middle of the street and the kids are playing with, you know, the the caution tape. Oh, I love that scene so much. It was, the fact that 
yeah, yeah. You, you, they, yeah. the fact that they just uh, the fact you've got the guy around the corner and he's just uh, bleeding the street and you've got people's onlookers gathered around but these kids are completely unfazed and as you said they're playing with the tape and it was such yeah. a great shot that was yeah and and you know you go to this thing and you're just like it it reminds us i think the movie also reminds us that there are people in very bad situations who the kids still holding their innocence are able to find simplicity and find their interpretation to make life a little better just like you know a pond of fish to them is a zoo whereas you know you know it, it, it's it's kind of like to them that that a pond is a pond right it's it's more like an aquarium it can't be a zoo to most people but to them these little things you know like you don't have a soccer field but we can make one there's a bag of balls here that we can play with you know and yeah. there's all these little things that happen and it's that element of innocence that also you know helps it when we see these tigers come to life and it's all these drawings this graffiti um that shine does on the wall we soon realize and it's and it's the and the, and the pictures on the walls is kind of like a sign of him and his gang as they as they you know go through the streets and in each of the pictures you know you start seeing these little details um just like you know in in one of the shots they take a picture of you know like the the boys and they all have their names on there and it, it's like before these characters are even introduced formally we kind of when you look at the picture you kind of know the names and then the same goes for you know another shot when they you see all this graffiti drawn of um of the cartel with um you know kako and then um obviously their big leader um chino and all that stuff um you see these characters and you have all this stuff there uh, and, and, you know, obviously the, the central focus is I love how, you know, these tigers all come to life. I'm a big fan of tigers. So I really, really love like all the like I think this movie was just so attractive for me because it of like the emphasis on tigers and all those different ways that it came to life and all that sort of stuff. Definitely so. And th- these boys, are they're basically... I mean, they obviously uh, start off with the tiger as the basis, uh, sort of basis of their own sort of fairy tale, and they sort of build on. So the tiger becomes this symbol of protection for them, as you mm-hmm. said already. You've got Shine spray painting it around around the city, and he's almost sort of uh, illustrating the lives of the that they're leading through the graffiti that he spreads throughout the city. Um, which obviously, if you're on the run from your local gangsters, probably isn't the wisest thing to do. And I had to wonder why, how the cartel are constantly able to find them wherever they happen to be. These cart, the cartel is constantly able to find them. Uh, so that that was one of the sort of things that did throw me off. But I mean, the situation here with with the cartel is so different than any other sort of like crime situation that we're perhaps used to when we obviously see gangs on films. Uh, the fact that here with the Mexican drug war, I mean, the gangs are so powerful and all controlling. The fact that we've got the leader of the cartel actually campaigning to be a political figure. We see adverts around the city for him to be like this uh, upstanding political figure. And it's sort of like, wow, the, the gangs have so much money and influence that they can now run for office as well. So it's um, and we get hints of the the fact that this gang have got like satanic tendencies as well which felt a little underplayed i mean we get little hints of it at the beginning such as when uh she go she goes into into the house of one of these uh, gang members to to originally assassinate him 
and that finds all these uh, kids in cages which are apparently being used for like satanic sacrifice and it, it felt at that point that the whole satanic angle of these these gang members kind of got put on the side and it was kind of a shame it's never properly explored whether they were actual satanists or if it's just part of their sort of legacy they're playing up that you know we're protected by satan but i think that but I think that in a certain way, if it did add in too much focus on the satanic um, rituals and stuff, mm. it would have convoluted the story a lot more. Uh, right now, the story's focus is on the kids. It's on, you know, their survival. It's on kind of like a more dramatic angle, I guess, where you kind of see that darkness and that the horror of it is in these gang members who are chasing them and the life that, you know, the horrors of reality, I suppose. Um, and, and it kind of like, you know, so I, I feel like the gangs probably weren't used as much as they could have been used, but in certain ways it, it still works a lot because you give these kids, um, different spotlights and the different places that they have to go. And it's kind of like their journey into this as, you know, you see how they deal with all the situations that they have to go through. Yeah. And I mean, certainly when... I mean, we're obviously drawing a lot of comparisons here to Del Toro's similar films. I mean, uh, but I found that with Lopez's vision, it's all certainly a lot more grounded. She doesn't go for the fantastical elements as much as like Del Toro does, especially in the case of like Pan's Labyrinth, which was it was almost like you had the two worlds. You had like the real world where we've obviously got the Spanish Revolution happening, and then we've got the fantasy world where she's off completing. Uh, like the Tass and she's like seeing like the giant frog and the blind man and with this film it's very sort of grandiose as whether obviously those supernatural elements to the film they never seemed to felt like that they were sort of like overwhelming and we were never sort of lost focus of sort of the grim reality that these kids face I mean the fact that we got we got um, adult on child violence here which is absolutely shocking and it's characters that you would deem like the most innocent that often the ones who fall first it's not the ones who are sort of putting themselves out there on the front line it's these sort of uh, people on the sort of sidelines here who are sort of falling victim um, in, in the crossfire between these these two forces really yeah I mean they're I think that, but it, I think it also works though, because in some ways it, it it shows it emphasizes a lot about how innocent these kids are in the situation and how you know the situation around for them around them is very unforgiving um, because all the everything they do is to survive. Everything they do is kind of like you know um, you can kind of see that. Especially in the case of, say, Shine and um, Estrella, both of them are kind of like, you know, as the movie goes along, you feel like they're really like a mom and dad. They're kind of like parents. They're more grown up. They're more adults. They've kind of really like grown to take care of the younger ones in the group to kind of like preserve their innocence a little. Because if they don't need to worry about as much, then obviously someone standing up for them then they can still retain a lot of their innocence and 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 that's how you know i think the story makes you know the loss of these characters sometimes um when it happens to be uh it hits you a lot harder yes definitely and i mean i was surprised as well the fact that, i mean this is a film which is predominantly 
shot from a child's perspective. So we're, we're as the majority of our time is spent with the, this group of children. And I was never irritated by any of the performances. And I think it may have also had the fact to do that these were just kids who had no experience prior yeah. to shooting the film. And they were basically put into this acting boot camp to sort of get them up to up to speed prior to the shooting. And then the whole film is shot in chronological order and they're never shown a script and they're just sort of thrown, had yeah. the situation thrown at them and it really does provoke these sort of very natural reactions within the children. I think that's where the real sort of charm of the film lies. We're not watching kids sort of act older than they are or yeah. trying to be like smart ass and stuff. These are just real everyday kids who uh, do kid things. So yeah. they make stupid decisions. They find child-like escapes such as like uh when one of them has like uh the football shirt drawn on his back with permanent marker so he he draws like uh the the number and the the player's name on his uh on his back and it was sort of like this was uh moments of innocence were were allowed here it's not just the fact that we're going to watch a bunch of children who are going to be like corrupted and twisted by the world around them you know and as you said already you've got the characters of shine and Estrella who are just acting like the the parental figures here because they are obviously the older ones and they do try to shield the younger members from what they can but at the same time they try to you know teach them that you know this is a world where you've got to be prepared to fight you this is a dangerous world we live in and there are people who are willing to kill you even if you are a child and mm-hmm. it's we, we as the audience are constantly reminded of this. We we have moments where we get too comfortable, and then we're sort of jolted back into reality by some act of violence or some shocking moment. Here. And it's sort of like we realize, wow, this is the world we are in. Yeah, and I think you know, in that sense, it's really it's really good how the story is structured. Even though you know we don't like you said, do you know we don't focus a lot on the gang, but their presence is always there. And you always feel it, whether it's a phone ringing or whether it's just, you know, um, you know, them running around or in the vicinity or, you know, that that sort of thing. You really feel that they're there, even if we don't understand the gang a lot. Like, we don't really know or we don't really go into depth of, you know, what they're actually doing. Um, and and, and it's, it's, it's also, you know, the fact that the main issue here is really the stolen phone. Um, it's very, I think what it is, is it's very straightforward, I guess that's the best way to say, is the story revolves around the kids. They steal a phone, they don't know what's on the phone, and the mystery is, the whole time is, you know, what happened to Estrella's mom? Where did she go? And second is, what is the significance of this, you know, uh, of this phone that makes these, get this gang want to follow them or chase them down? And then, you know, the third thing is, you know, obviously Shine is hiding something, but what is he hiding, you know, sort of thing. Like, he also has, you know, he has his secrets also. Um, and and all these things kind of like, you know, Estrella doesn't talk about her wishes until, you know, until she actually, you know, is faced with the situation. And, you know, obviously when when we ha- we talk about all her wishes, it at the end, it, it becomes something where, you know, she's always like, you know, when I make a wish, something bad happens. So, the in, in reality, you start wondering at the end of the movie whether the wish is a fairy tale, if it's really a wish, or is it just something that she does and then that triggers, or, or is it is it real or not, right? It, yeah, you had to wonder how much is, like, coincidence or how much is in 
parallel mind. I mean, yeah. certainly I've speaking to other people about the film prior to recording. I know that a lot of people so said that they liked the film, but they didn't like the final shot of the the film. Mm-hmm. And for myself, it's really where Lopez sort of like goes. It's at her most surreal, really, as. I wasn't with. I obviously do understand that the ending. I think is supposed to be this sort of metaphor of freedom and mm-hmm. liberation, really, for the fact that this sort of nightmare for her is is finally sort of over. But it felt that uh, certainly with the end, she sort of like plays it so straight, so grounded, and the fact that these wishes it could be just like played down to coincidence or being in her mind, and then we get to the end and it's sort of like, oh no, we're just going to go sort of full fantasy here. Uh, we're just going to pull out all our sort of horror tricks and stuff and we're going to use it where it's all going to come together for this uh, final sort of payoff sort of sequence and it's a uh, in one way it kind of made sense because obviously when we, we talk about these these ghosts that are like constantly talking to her throughout the film and the fact that uh, they want revenge on on the, on this cartel uh, leader so by her delivering him to them it sort of made sense in that respect but at the same time it felt like Lopez in kind of way was kind of cheating away the fact that she's managed to get this far without sort of going uh, into sort of like supernatural and sort of using that to sort of especially when she's like played so much of the film for like you know coincidence or whether it'll be just in the heads of her characters so for her to sort of like say you know this is actually happening it it's uh, left me feeling kind of mixed on, on the situation. I mean, it, I liked the ending, but it just, uh, as I said, it just felt very out of tone with the rest of the film. I don't know. I, I think I view it in a different way, is that um, I think that it was deliberate to give these supernatural things, kind of like, oh, is it happening? But at the same time, say in terms of the ghosts <coughs> and the spirits, it really feels like, it really feels like, you know, that part is real. And, yeah. you know, Mexican lore really you know a lot of movies and in, in mexican movies and such um or happen to you know believe in the supernatural and ghosts and that sort of stuff so it's not you know too far-fetched to think that this is part of the movie and that aspect is real um where things become a little bit more is you know obviously at you know the final shots and that would be you know um like you said this symbolism of freedom uh, where she she sees you know a lot of stuff um, you know she runs into pretty much a field and you see all this kind of more you know like the world is changed now it's not you know the the broken city that she that's on the other side I guess mm. <laughs> and and I think that you know in some ways I think that it's a good ending because it kind of is kind of like her escape it, it's kind of like in some ways, she still believes in this fantasy, and it ends in the fact of, um, you know, what we've talked about, you know, which kind of, like, is a link to, say, a Coppola film in that sense, where where she starts is kind of where she ends, but just it becomes her reality. And in the beginning, we talk about fairy tales. So at the end, what she does is she embraces the fairy tales that she's, she's talking about, about, you know, how tigers are not afraid. Um, you know, tigers... Uh, you know, there, there's a whole talk about, you know, the the story about uh, tigers not being afraid and about the prince and, you know, the prince finding, you know, uh, the prince, the prince finally finding themselves and and how tigers are, um, you know, how tigers are not afraid because they went through bad stuff and came out the other side. And and in that sense, 
the ending of the film embraces that whole idea they were talking about the entire movie and brings together that point of why these kids are so obsessed with tigers and the symbolism of the tigers in this is much stronger because it's like you know they find their freedom they remember who they are that they're that they're warriors and that you know they're the they're the king of this kingdom of broken things at least that's what they said in this translation and i think that it's it's such it's such a beautiful ending um I don't know. I just I just really like this movie. So I maybe I'm biased, but <laughs> I really like, you know, the way it's it uses the symbolism and it doesn't forget that, you know, we talked about fairy tales at the beginning. So we're going to end with that as well. Definitely so. And I said when we talk about the ghost element here and we saw this again with Devil's Backbone, the fact that the ghosts we see in this film are representative of how these people have died. Obviously, within Dell's backbone, we've got the sort of watery ghost there, which gives us hints of where his body lies. And then we obviously, when we have this film, we've got these revenant-like beings who are just wrapped in plastic, uh, which is such a really cool visual, it has to be said. And certainly when when all sort of the spirits of the of these uh, these cartel victims suddenly start coming to her once and we see her running for the streets and like every corner she she goes there's just more of these uh revenant creatures uh around every corner i thought that was a really cool sort of shots and it yeah. did obviously make me question like do we see her sort of grow at all throughout the film or does she sort of like retain be like one of these few characters who actually sort of retains her innocence throughout the whole film i mean is she still the same girl that we see running out of mother's apartment at the start of the film that she is at the end of the film or has she sort of like adapted and become sort of more tougher because of the things that she's gone through and the things that she's obviously seen on her journey i don't really think that i think that i think that she's grown in the sense that estrella in the beginning she compared to you know like shine and his gang of friends and and gang of kids pretty much she starts off in a much more innocent way she starts off, you know, behind with it. They've already been surviving on the streets for a while, whereas she's just trying to... She's just getting into this world of having to survive by herself. And, you know, somehow being... Being, you know, be, as a cause of what happens to her mother that she's stuck in this situation of having to to deal with this, this whole, like, living on the streets. And... In a way, she's learned a lot through this, and she's become stronger. She's found the courage. Um, but does she really lose her innocence? I don't really think so. I think that, if anything, Estrella's character learns to be stronger. She finds her courage. You know, she finds how to be a warrior. That that's I think that that's the ending, right? So, I think that, in many ways, she does what needs to be done. But at the same time, if you ask if she really did hurt anybody. I don't think she really did. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think it really, like, it's it, it didn't, I don't know. I don't know how to say it. It's it's just, like, she grows. She de- Her character definitely develops. But whether she loses her innocence, I don't really think she actually does. It's more that she becomes stronger. That That's what I mean. Yeah, I mean, certainly when, as you mentioned earlier, we were like, when we look at Shine, who's obviously been on the streets a lot longer and is this sort of much tougher uh, persona. And we, I think it's also the fact that of what he's been through, because he's obviously got the visible burns on his face. He's um, surrounded by 
people who like him have seen their parents taken away from from him and just like left as a street orphan because of the situation affecting the city and the fact yeah. that that no one is able to do it to do anything about it it's just this ongoing nightmare that the people in the city don't they just have learned to live with I mean, yes, the schools the school shut up at the beginning, but we're not going to investigate it. We'll just have to close school for a few days while we fix the school up again. Mm-hmm. Um, this 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 is just the the situation these people are forced to live into, and the fact that because of this, I mean, these people are sort of like even if they're not murdered or disappeared, um, it just it's, it's all it's doing is turning this city into like this absolute ghost town and. It's a, such an interesting location to have this story unfold over because it's quite unlike anything that we've seen in other other films. And I think whether it's just the fact that it's a Mexican production gives it that edge. And it felt that, yes, we're getting a ghost story, but at the same time, it's it's not sort of a ghost story that we've seen before because it's drawing in so many other elements of other, uh, other sort of films of similar situations. I mean, like, as I said, you've got the Mexican drug war there. You've got street gangs. You've got, um, as I said, this this whole different locale, which is completely different from sort of like the uh, Edwardian manners that uh, we obviously have with British horror or the, you know, the spooky locales that uh, you have for American horror. Here we have like a, a city of where it's like constantly sunny and every, a lot of the film is sort of taken even in like sort of permanent midnight or brilliant daylight. And these are, the, these are very sort of... Uh, as I say, it just feels like such a fresh, a fresh vision, especially for like a, a over uh, for a, a much um, work genre like uh, like ghost stories. I think that one of the main things I think if we look at Shutter, even you know the comments, is some of the people don't think that this is a horror film, and um, it's it it is only it is more horror elements, and I don't I don't believe that a horror film is defined by say you know overload of supernatural or monsters or creatures or something like that i think that this movie is still qualified as a horror film because of its fairy tale uh, its dark fairy tale elements and um because you know reality is very scary sometimes and for these kids um perhaps you know perhaps you know in i I don't know mexico very well but i would assume that you know, just like movies like, you know, Fast Five or something like that shows, you know, cities that are, you know, very, very poor and have a lot of, you know, drug cartels and stuff in the area. This is the same situation where there is probably somewhere in Mexico, which is like this, which has that same kind of, you know, that kids are, are in those situations, which are very scary, um, that threaten their life every day. And that's a horror story in itself. That's that's someone else's reality, you know. Definitely so, and if, I think the problem is that when we we look at horrors as a genre, we just sort of look, look predominantly at what scares us as being the sort of the defining criteria for what makes a horror film or not. And certainly, when you compare it to sort of like more traditional sort of horror films, and certainly more traditional sort of ghost stories like uh, *Haunting of Hill House*, for example, yeah. um, and I mean the sort of definition of what the horror genre is 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 basically uh films of fiction which is intended to frighten scare disgust or startle yeah. and certainly those feelings are invoked within the film i mean there are supernatural elements 
in in this film and as i said there's moments where you're shocked by what what you see and as i said these are just i think as you said already i mean this is just everyday horror it doesn't have to be of um overly supernatural for it to be um a horror film and i think perhaps if the fact that uh, lopez isn't going as hard as as she perhaps could have with like the gore and the shocks and and that and determined to instead just like keep it on a very sort of human level and mm-hmm. sort of a, a more emotional response which i think may lead some people sort of de- uh, detracting but at the same time i think if you like what del toro was obviously doing like del's backbone and pads Labyrinth, from whom those films were constantly coming back to here then i think that uh, there's definitely a lot to enjoy here yeah and and you know i think that this is kind of like the charm of indie movies is that it functions on a smaller scale but a lot of them rem- remember to be a lot more grounded as well and it's it's fresh because you know hollywood horror has really s- distanced itself from that it likes to be you know going for those obvious scares that or obvious predictable paths and what really makes indie films really grow is seeing people with these ideas of you know bringing bringing different cultures and different worlds you know bringing the world closer together i guess seeing you know just what's the things that we don't see in other countries that are going on perhaps maybe maybe a bit dramatized i don't know if that's the case here because i don't want anybody to be like oh you don't know what's going on i don't i i admit that (laughs) so maybe it's dramatized maybe it's it's a reality i don't know but i feel i still feel that this movie is really good because of just you know the fact of you know being grounded and the smaller scale really does it really a lot of a lot of points because it it you know it doesn't it keeps the plot very tight and not as convoluted as as you know there's a lot of things here that could be you know expanded on but i don't really think it it was necessary to do it um certainly not i mean i mean mean, i'm excited to see what she does next yeah i think that's that's the most exciting part especially now that she's sort of got become this uh protege of of del toro and in many ways it's it's when you look at all the good great directors the fact that they've sort of become proteges of someone else further down the line i mean obviously del toro was um protege of um ambovato mm-hmm. um who basically said who saw like um chronos and said you know whatever you want to make next i will fund it and then obviously went off to do devil's backbone and I think sometimes it's just about getting the right people together. And I think certainly when you have like a name like Del Toro attached to a film, I think it opens a lot more doors the same way that if you have like, for like Eli Roth had been attached to Tarantino, the fact that Hostel is a Quentin Tarantino presentation certainly opened up a lot more doors than if it was just like Eli Roth <laughs> presents. <laughs> um, certainly when you look at the quality of Eli Ross movies you can certainly credit a lot to Tarantino opening those doors for him so mm-hmm. um, I think as I said I think it's going to be really exciting to see what she does and the fact that she's not just doing the same thing again it's as it is a werewolf western yeah. which is the I've just been dredging my memory of like any western horrors films I can see and certainly there's quite a few zombie horrors but uh, yeah, it's not one I've seen I've not seen any werewolf cowboy yeah. movies so that'd well, be really cool to see i mean in general in general western is not so frequent now and well i mean obviously it's a bit more frequent after you know bone tomahawk and stuff like that becomes became a success and and 
in terms of werewolf, I mean, it's so underused that I'm really interested to see, um, you know, these two minds working together and what they can create. Because obviously, you know, we're a big fan of Del Toro, um, as people can see. If and if you haven't, well, go and listen to our season two. <laughs> and um, you know, I really like Lopez, and you know, just the mind that she has in in you know, like. The things she's trying to create so i'm really interested to see you know obviously i want to try and catch up to previous movies that she's done eventually and at the same time also you know keep my eye out to see where this werewolf western is gonna go i'm not a big fan of westerns but maybe she'll change my mind <laughs> it's i mean it's such an intriguing concept i mean obviously you've got the native if it's obviously set in in the wild west i mean you obviously got the native american angle there's obviously connections there with like shamanism and uh people turning into animals so you've obviously got that connection there i mean we got a hint of what could be done if you put werewolves into into a, a sort of like a that's sort of same when we look at love death and robots we obviously had the what was happening we put werewolves into the afghan war that was pretty cool so yeah. if we put werewolves into sort of the western setting whether it's sort of like a dog soldier start thing where yeah. it's sort of like cowboys versus werewolves or if it's as i said just like a gang of outlaw werewolves who are sort of like living this sort of bandit sort of <laughs> lifestyle it's there's a lot of possibility there and much like the eastern westerns i'm really sort of excited whenever someone brings a new spin to uh the western genre because i always find it like one of the more difficult genres to get into so when we have as i said like the eastern western things such as like shinjuku western Django, the good the bad and the weird or even like uh you mentioned already with like bone tomahawk craig czar's uh cannibals versus cowboys western which was uh a slow burn but a real sort of fun refreshing change mm-hmm. further watching if you do like uh tigers are not afraid what would you suggest watching next uh, well, I went very uh, dark fairy tale angle. So obviously, you know, um, the obvious ones are the ones we've mentioned, like Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, a plug here that if you haven't seen it, we've reviewed all those in season two. So you can hear our discussions. <laughs> um, after that, uh, I kind of jumped forward a holiday and, and went for Krampus, which is also a dark fairy tale <laughs> about, you know, Kind of like a dark Santa. I don't know how you call Krampus. <laughs> uh, yeah, Krampus is the uh, is a, a Germanic uh, fairy tale. He's uh, sort of like a demon version of Santa who kidnaps uh, wicked children and uh, gives out gives out. Uh, I'm trying. I get him confused. And there's also Sant, who's a uh, from the Netherlands, who who gave out like whipping rods to, to parents of. Uh, ill uh ill-mannered children so yeah Krampus is it's become sort of like in vogue at the sort of the last couple of years he's uh i'd say he's sort of the demonic um version of santa yeah so we've seen him in obviously like rare exports and we saw him uh as you said in Krampus, which is awesome yeah Krampus is great i mean you see uh you know a lot of channeling some uh <coughs> creepy Santa snowman and then there was like uh there was like gingerbread fights and gingerbread men fights and, and all that kind of stuff. It was it was a super fun thing. It was a really really fun movie. Um, I guess a bit slow sometimes, but I don't know. I had I had some issues with it when I first saw it, but I don't. But it, it, a lot of it made up for you know the the little Christmas things really worked well. Um, my second movie would be uh, 2009's um, stop motion dark fantasy horror film Coraline. 
Um, I'm a big fan of Coraline. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's about, you know, a girl who moves to this new place and then she discovers this parallel world where, um, behind a secret door where it's like a new home. She sees a mom who seems to be really nice to her, better than, you know, the one that she has right now. Doesn't give her a hard time, but, you know, creepy as hell because they have buttons for eyes and all that crap. So, <laughs> there's a lot of dark stuff in this one, um, but the fantasy elements and um, the horror elements, especially for an animated film, really, really, you know, really hits the right spot. And um, the last one, I'm going to come back into reality a little, <laughs> and um, it's going to be a also a movie that I caught at the at a festival at the Fantasia at the Fantasia Festival. And um, this is a Irish horror movie, <laughs> 2005 Irish horror movie, which um, which focuses its elements around um, pretty much, uh, I guess you would call it the evil is really um, demonic creatures in the woods uh, who turn out to be kind of like evil fairies sort of thing. Um, it's really interesting. It, it's 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 kind of it's. It's a fun movie to watch. Very dark. Um, I, I don't know how to say it, but it, I don't remember a lot of it, but I remembered it having some really great elements there of, of uh, fantasy and changing those fantasies into kind of just horror creatures. So, yeah, what was there, What was on your list? <laughs> um, for myself, it's, it's more just about the, uh, the horrors of the... Uh, horrors of the street life really and uh, first up my most obvious one would be Sicaro from 2015 again, again about the Mexican drug cartels um, really enjoyable from thriller I've yet to watch the sequel uh, but here we've got Emily Blunt playing uh, FBI agent who is drafted in with a government official um, to join a task force uh, that is leaving a covert operation against the war, of dr war against drugs in Mexico um, really sort of intense uh, thriller and one that's definitely worth checking out especially for a stand-up performance by Benicio Del Toro and a tough girl performance by Emily Blunt which is kind of a rarity for herself because it's sort of that and Edge of Tomorrow where you sort of tapped into that vibe rather than the Devil Wears Prada fashionista vibe that we're sort of more familiar with her seeing um, the other one I would go with is City of God from 2002 uh, this follows the again it's the Brazilian street gangs from nineteen from starting in the nineteen sixties um, and it's in the blood sort streaks and open gang war of the nineteen eighties all seen through the eyes of a young aspiring photographer called Rocket uh, we see him sort of grow up in the slums of Rio de Janeiro and how the people around him get drawn into the gang life and how um, it affects them all in very different sort of ways. But uh, those would be the ones I would uh, sort of go with if you want uh, more of this sort of world that, um, for myself at least, uh, Tigers Are Not Afraid felt very much sort of set within. So, But, uh, yeah. So that brings us to the end of another edition of Movies and Tea. Thank you, as always, for listening. You can, of course, follow us on the social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also check out our blog, which is moviesandteapodcast.wordpress.com. And on there, you can not only find all our uh, previous episodes, but you can also uh, check out our Friday Film Club feature, where every Friday, myself and Kim both pick a film to form an interesting double feature as we both highlight the films that... Uh, we both like to like and think all these should check out, but at the same time, 
don't quite perhaps feel there's uh, enough to justify a whole episode two or can't find the space and schedule to give an episode two. Um, as well, if you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you happen to be listening to us and leave us a review. It all helps raise the profile of the show and uh, gets the word out there. So if you uh, know any friends who are looking for a good podcast, let us know. If you've got enemies that you want to spam, please send them our podcast as well. It's all appreciated, uh, anything to get the word out there. But, Kim, before we go, what are we looking at on the next episode? Well, next episode probably should be you that's introducing it, because it's your pick. That's right. Um, On the next episode, we are going to be looking at the debut film of one of my all-time favourite directors, Richard Kelly, and we're going to be looking at Donnie Darko, a film which kind of flopped in its initial release in the states but came over to the uk and got an immense cult following before it returned to the states and did exactly the same this is a film set in the 1980s and only introduced as jake gyllenhaal but also a time-traveling demonic bunny called frank as if we have a film which blends genres and skips over genres like it's playing jump rope while featuring some absolute standout performances throughout in what is perhaps a very unique and surreal movie that I really can't wait for you to see because this is going to be a first time watch for yourself, Kim, is that right? Yeah. So that's going to be really exciting to see. So see what you make of it. But um, we hope you all enjoy us for next time. Uh, thank you as always to my co-host Kim and thank you everyone for listening and we will be back next time discussing Donnie Darko. Good night. <laughs>